Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've made. And thank you for all the souls that are represented in this room this morning. God, thank you for giving each of us life. And many of us, you've given new life. And you've caused us to be born a second time, God, spiritually. Where we have been awakened, our eyes have been opened, our ears have been opened, our our hearts have been softened, we've been made alive to you, and we see things differently, and we know things that we didn't know before, and uh, things about us, and things about you, and, and we have a new relationship, God. We have been united to you, and uh, can stand before you forgiven and washed clean, and what a great place that is to be. So, God, thank you. Thank you. Your saints this morning say thank you. I pray for those who have only been born once here today. And I pray that you would cause them to be born again. I pray even that that language that seems like it did to Nicodemus seems weird to them and seems strange to them. But I pray that they would hear your gospel and they would hear good news and and what before sounded like foolishness would uh, soon, God, would soon sound uh, like the wisdom of God. And you would, uh, you would awaken them to their sin and to your salvation. So we thank you for the word we have this morning. I pray that you would help me to speak well, to preach well. And you help us all to listen well and to hear well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, three more weeks in our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, three more weeks and we're going to move on to a brief topical series. Uh, I've changed the name of that to Church Matters, which will include three sermons, one on discipleship in the church, one on corporate worship in the church, and one on congregationalism in the church. I'm sure that sounds very gripping to many of you. You're going to mark that on your calendar right now. So we'll see both of you for those <laughs> messages. And then that's going to be followed by an expository sermon series through Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians. So uh, really looking forward to all of that. Please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 49 if you haven't already. Jacob, you know he's dying. Jacob is dying. He's 147 years old, so he is, uh, he's lived a long life. He's old, he's, he's feeble, he doesn't see well, not a lot of breath left in his lungs, and so we're reading about his last uh, deeds, his last words, and uh, we get to watch him die, which may sound morbid, but is, is really helpful for us and really good for us because we, we want to see how, uh, how godly men and women end this life. It's a great privilege, a great honor. Some of you have had that privilege. Some of you have had that honor. Uh, many lives are taken suddenly. And there isn't a time to sort of ramp down and there isn't a, you know, there aren't these concluding days, but some are given uh, some sort of a heads up, you know, from a doctor, her body begins to fail, what have you, and there's a, there's an understanding that the days are few. And maybe some of you have been able to watch and, and, and be with those godly men and women as their lives came to an end. 
And I hope you watched closely. And I hope you listened to their words closely. Because uh, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful th- thing to see a godly person transition from one life to the next. So what an honor it is for us. The Bible never slows down for the the deaths of um, her saints, but Jacob is a is an exception. Seventy five verses devoted to the death of Jacob, so slows slows way down as we're watching um, how this godly man transitions from one life to the next. Hebrews eleven reflects back on the life of Jacob and his final days. In verse twenty one, by faith Jacob. When he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. What a way to go out. Godly, um, blessing those around you. So today, here in chapter 49, we come to the third and final deathbed scene for Jacob. So there's been three deathbed scenes, and this is going to be the third and final deathbed scene. In chapter 47, Jacob sent for his son Joseph. He sensed that the end of his life was was coming to an end. And so he brought in Joseph and made Joseph promise that he wouldn't bury his body in Egypt, but rather that he'd bury his body in Canaan. And he wanted that to be a symbol of the great promises that God had made, namely the promise of a future for this family, a promise of redemption for this family, a promise for new land for this family. He said, I want to be buried in that new land. So he had Joseph come in, just him and Joseph. And then in chapter 48, it was, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 47, um, Joseph, and then chapter 48, he, he brought in Joseph and Joseph's two sons. And he um, brought them in to hug them and uh, kiss them, and, and preach a bit to them, and bless them. That's what he did with his grandsons. And now we come to chapter 49 where he calls in all of his boys. So it was just him and Joseph, deathbed scene number one. And then it was Joseph and his two grandsons, deathbed scene number two. And now this final deathbed scene, he invites all of his boys in, all 12 of his sons. And these are the Final words of Jacob. And it's interesting to note, these are the, the, the first final words that we find in the book of Genesis. So no final words recorded from Adam. No final words from Noah. No final words from Abraham or Isaac. Lots of other significant godly men, but none of their last dying words are recorded. Jacob, again, Jacob, Slows way down here. Special attention for his dying words. So chapter 49, verse 1 and 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Two things to note. Number one, all of these words that we're about to read are both retrospective and prospective. So the words that Jacob is going to say now to each of his 12 sons, they're looking back and they're looking forward. So he's going to talk to each of his sons and he's going to say, here's something about you and your past and your history. 
And here are the implications. Here is something about you and your future and how it's going to go for you. He's looking forward. Going to see how some of the characteristics of these boys are going to affect their future. Going to see the future bringing to fruition some of the tendencies that are described in these young men. As well as the fruition or fulfillment of some, and some of the consequences of their past behavior. So that's one thing to note that as he looks at his boys, it's going to be something retrospective and prospective, looking back and looking forward. And the second thing to note is that what we're going to read here in these verses is specifically a prophecy. This is a prophecy. This is not a predictive I mean, this is not uh, wishful thinking on Jacob's part. This is actually predictive in nature. So what he's going to say is, is going to come to pass. It's prophetic. So his words are inspired by God. Jacob is being inspired by God right now. He's a prophet of God right now. And so it's not just wishful thinking. You know, I think this is going to happen. Hey, you know, son, you... You're, you're this kind of boy, and so this is probably how it's going to go for you. Or son, you're this kind of a boy, and so this is probably what you can, you can expect. Um, it's not his desires necessarily for his boys. Now that would be how I would bless my boys, because I don't know the future. I don't know the future. Uh, it's how I would bless all of you as people I care about. right? So it's not the Lord will bless you and make His face to shine upon you and His countenance. It's, it's what? It's may God bless you. So I'm hoping that this is how it goes for you. That it goes well and that you're obedient. You love the Lord for all your days and that your kids love the Lord and your grandkids love the Lord. That's what I hope for my boys too. Right? May it go well for you. So I might put my hands on them and pray for them. And It's wishful. It's hopeful. But it's not, pre- it's not predictive. It's not prophetic. So what's happening here, I mean, try to get your mind around this. This isn't an experience that any of us are going to have. But as Jacob is, as his life is ending, he's being inspired by God. He's being given insight from God into the future so that here as he lies on his deathbed, he knows, he knows how things are going to turn out for each of his sons. I'll tell you what, this chapter has been really difficult for me personally this week. It's been really tough to think through and, and really tough to read these words of Jacob. I've tried to put myself in Jacob's shoes and I can't imagine the burden of knowing the future of his boys. I just can't imagine that. Or one of the greatest, uh, it made me think of one of the greatest movies of all time, Back to the Future. <laughs> I think it got like uh, Best Picture back in the 80s. Got a bunch of Academy Awards, I know. I would watch that movie, right? Michael J. Fox, and I thought that is just. I used to used to imagine that that I could do that. I would have some sort of a time machine. How amazing that would be 
to hop in this time machine and to go into the future and, and uh, you know, to see how things turn out. Namely, how all sporting events turn out. <laughs> and I could come back and I could gamble on all of these games and, and have just unending, unending resources for the rest of my life. And of course, I would do great things with, with that money. <laughs> You know, and, and people think from time to time, you know, I would really love to know the future. I would really love to know how things turn out. And I, I wonder, you know, do you re- would you really? Would you really want to know the future? I mean, what if it wasn't good? What if some things did not turn out the way that you want them to turn out or, or really the way that you're you don't realize, but you're pretty certain they are going to turn out, and you're totally wrong. You're totally wrong, and you're just pretty certain that certain things are going to go well, and actually you find out they're, they're not going to go well. I mean, can you imagine the burden? What about in regards to your children? What if I was to have that, that burdensome knowledge of knowing, as I, I look at, you know, I have four Four little boys, little, I mean 11 and under. Four boys. I can't imagine looking into one of their eyes and knowing, and knowing that it was not going to go well for him. That it just was never going to go well. And it wasn't going to go well for his kids and for his kids' kids. And for generations, it was going to be just difficult and painful and sorrowful in this family. That'd be a terrible burden. But put yourself in Jacob's position because that's where he is. He's on his deathbed here. I can't imagine the faith that it would require to, to say these difficult words that he says as he's inspired by God and knows the truth. So he's going to go through his 12 boys. He's going to pass from oldest to youngest ex- with one exception that's how he's going to go through his his boys from oldest to youngest and he will gloss over some of the boys and and he'll spend a lot of time on others in fact Judah and Joseph those two he's going to spend most of his time his half his speech is devoted to two of his boys Judah and Joseph so you can imagine here he is in his bed and he's dying these are his last words and most likely what's happening is he's calling each of these boys, this would have been customary, he's calling each of these boys to come and kneel beside his bed and he's probably putting his hand over their head and he's, he's saying these words about each of these children which he loves. So we start with Reuben. Beginning in verse 3. Reuben. He calls Reuben to him. Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So this is his this is his boy. This is his is, he's out of all of his children, right? He's known Reuben the longest. There's a special relationship here, a, a distinct relationship, significant relationship. He's known Reuben longer than he's known any of his children. Reuben's his firstborn, his baby boy. Verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. 
because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben, who is the firstborn, and so he ought to have preeminence over all of his younger brothers. The oldest brother would have had the birthright, and the birthright would have entitled him to double the inheritance. He would get twice as much inheritance as the other boys would get, as well as he would be in line to replace his father as leader of the family. That was his position in the family. And, and, and Jacob calls Reuben and says, My son, my, uh, you, you just remind me of myself, right? You have my might and my strength, my firstborn. You're the preeminent you know, son in this family. But then what does he tell him? It's not going to go well for you, son. And you're not going to have spiritual preeminence in this family. And you're not going to have the blessings that you may have thought you were entitled to. He's already given the double inheritance to Joseph. Right? By giving an inheritance to each of Joseph's sons. And then we're going to see that replacing as leader of the family, surprisingly actually, is not Joseph who's been the main character of most of the book of Genesis. It's going to be Judah. And Judah will be the new leader of the family. And he looks at Reuben and he says, listen, you're, you're the preeminent one in the family, but you're not going to have the benefits of that preeminence that you thought you were entitled to. And the reason you're not going to have that preeminence is because of your sinfulness. Because you've been a wicked boy. How difficult would that have been to say to his son? But because of his sinfulness, his preeminent position is taken. Genesis 35, verse 22. Let me read it to you. This is what Jacob is talking about. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Billah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Reuben uh, slept with his stepmother, slept with his dad's wife. If you actually read through the Bible and follow the family line of Reuben, and you pay attention to all the descendants of, of each of the twelve brothers, you will find that one brother's line in particular is void of any, any significant individuals, any great leaders, and it's Reuben's family line. Throughout the Bible, you'll find great leaders and significant people and all these other brothers' descendants, but not, not amongst Reuben. Don't find anybody. So we see here this great potential of Reuben, but we see his dignity and preeminence disappointed and brought to naught through his own sin. Exodus 25. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. 
here's the simple point we should take from this prophetic word about Reuben. Sin has great consequences. Sin has great consequences. These are, the, these are how the natural consequences of Reuben's sin are going to play out in his family. Sin has great consequences. Well, unrepentant sin has a great consequence, doesn't it? Scripture tells us that unrepentant sin leads to death. And it doesn't mean physical death. It means spiritual death. This room is filled with sinners. Amen? There are no non-sinners in this room. No one is, is here saying, well, I used to be a sinner. That's not the difference. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, we're glad you're here. And understand that we don't think that the difference between Christians and those who are not Christians is one are sinners and the other are not sinners. This room is filled with sinners. The distinction is this. In this room are repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. So some of you, many of you, most of you, I hope, are repentant sinners. It means that you've turned from your sin and you've turned from yourself and you've placed your faith and your trust in God. And Jesus Christ has become the Lord of your life and your Savior and your ultimate treasure. You're a Christian. You're what we would call a repentant sinner. And some of you are not repentant sinners. You have not turned from your sinfulness and turned to God. You have not placed your trust in Jesus. You don't love Jesus. You don't follow Jesus. You don't submit to Jesus. And so you are an unrepentant sinner. And the consequences of unrepentant sin are spiritual death, which means that when you die, you will die again. When you die, you will keep dying. When you die, you will be eternally alienated from God and everything good. You'll be in hell. So unrepentant sin has great consequences. But, and this is the distinction that I think we need to make, especially when we're looking at Reuben's life, even sin that does not lead to death. 1 John 5 talks about this. Even sin that does not lead to death can lead to much pain and much sorrow and not just for the sinner, but for the sinner's friends and the sinner's spouse and the sinner's children and the sinner's grandchildren. Sin is not Private sin is not localized. Sin is not contained. Your sin is not just private. Your sin is not contained. And your sin is not localized. Our sin has far-reaching consequences. And we need to make that distinction. This is really important. Because this is meant to keep you, Christian, from sinning. 
so that we don't make a mockery of grace in the cross. Oh, well, it's covered. It's covered. Will the Christian be forgiven of all of their sin? Absolutely. The Christian will be forgiven for all of their sin. But do not take that as a license to sin. I mean, there's a problem there and we would wonder if you actually are a Christian and you actually have been transformed by the grace of God because you should want to obey God now and not use His grace and mercy as a license to commit more sin. Oh, well, I can do this because He'll wash me clean. I can fall into this sin and repent later because I'm a Christian and so He's taken my sin as far as the east is from the west. So there are some of you who are Christians and you go into despair because of your sin. And you do need someone to come alongside you and talk about grace and mercy. <laughs> there's forgiveness for you. And there's, there's cleansing for you. And there's hope for you. And there's a way out of this guilt. And there's a way out of this shame. So if you are in that pit of despair, there is hope for you. And there is counsel for you. And there are good, godly, biblical words to pull you out of that despair. But some of you need the scale tipped the other way. Some of you need to hear about how serious your sin is and how far-reaching the consequences of your sin are. And I'm talking to Christians. Christians, your sin has far-reaching consequences. Unless you hear of God's grace and take that as a license to persist in certain sins in your life, you need to be awakened to this truth. That even sin that does not lead to death, it, it may not alienate you from God. But it sure may alienate you from people on this planet. God may forgive you, but your spouse may not forgive you. And your children may not forgive you. That's serious to think about. Our sin has far-reaching consequences. I think about my sin. It's one of the things that's brought up this week. And I'm, I'm so thankful for the forgiveness that I have for my sin. I'm so thankful that I have been reconciled to God. But I also know of footprints that my sin has left in this world. And I know of the effects that I've already seen of my sin against others. And I do fear. And I am filled with sorrow of what the further effects may be from sins I cannot take back. That should sober us, Christians. It should cause us to live carefully and to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received. 
So we look at Reuben. We look at his life. And we see that the, uh, the effects of this are going to be great. And it's going to be passed on to his kids and to his grandkids and to his great-grandkids. There's a principle here for parents. If you are, real simply put, if you are godly and live for Jesus, your children will benefit. If you are ungodly and don't live for Jesus, your children will pay the consequences. That is true. That is true. That doesn't mean that... It means that if you are godly and love Jesus' parents, that there's going to be great benefit to your children. And it means that if you are ungodly and you do not love Jesus, that also is going to have an effect on your children. And there are going to be consequences for that. It doesn't mean even Exodus chapter 20 that God is so mad at you that He's going to find your kids and punish them for what you did. No, what does it say? The third and fourth generation of your kids who also, what? Hate Me. But why do they hate God? Well, because their dad hated God and their grandpa hated God or God said He loved God, but behind closed doors He didn't love God or He was duplicitous or He was a hypocrite. And he took him to church and he had all the spiritual talk with everyone else, but not his wife and not his kids. That has far-reaching consequences. As a youth pastor for seven years, I watched kid after kid after kid graduate from youth ministry and graduate from Christianity at the same time. And it was because for 18 years they'd been dropped off at church to be Christianized by mom and dad. And mom and dad were there on Sunday, but they watched mom and dad during the week. And they listened to mom and dad during the week. And they saw the hypocrisy. And as soon as they were out of their parents' home, guess what they wanted to have nothing to do with? Christianity. The church. Jesus. Simeon and Levi, verses 5-7. through seven. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Here the Father distances Himself from the cruel wrath and the the anger of His boys, Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi, it says in verse 5, are brothers. Now what this means is that they are close. Because all these boys are brothers. But Simeon and Levi, they they are close. Now, brothers who are close can do one of two things. They can either help each other out or they can drag each other down. Maybe you have a brother that's like that. If one of you is doing well, the other one's doing well. If one of you isn't doing well, the other one isn't doing well. If one of you is in trouble, the other one's in trouble. If one of you isn't in trouble, the other one's probably not in trouble. But where he goes, I go. Where he goes, I go. It's like Simeon and Levi. And unfortunately, these were brothers who were close, but had committed some very, some very grievous sin. So that's going to have long-term effects. 
Simeon's small tribal area will be within the larger tribe, Judah. And Levi and his descendants are going to be spread out. They won't even have a tribal area of their own. They'll be spread out amongst 48 cities throughout all the tribes. What God is doing is there is a thread in these boys and in their boys, Simeon and Levi. There's a thread of anger and wrath and impatience that runs through them and their descendants. And so God is actually going to restrict their power because of what would happen if they had too much power. So they're going to be restricted. They're going to be spread out. That said, God is gracious in this family. Great men end up coming from this family of Levi. Men like Moses, Aaron, Finehas, Eli, Ezra, and John the Baptist all come from this tribe of Levi. And God is gracious. While nothing good really seems to come from Reuben and his descendants, we read about Simeon and Levi. And we see that God continues to work and bring good fruit from this family. So Jacob had hard words for Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Sad words but truthful words. He doesn't doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't say things that aren't true, as we might be tempted to do. Oh, son, I'm sure it's going to go well. Sometimes things don't end well. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes the sin has great, far-reaching consequences. I wrestled with this. What's going on here? Aren't you not supposed to bring up people's past sins? Why is Jacob bringing this up on his deathbed? There's some different possibilities. Maybe these boys weren't repentant. Maybe Reuben and Simeon and Levi were all unrepentant, ungodly men. But I don't think so. I don't know. I don't think so, though. I think these boys were converted. I think this was really a part of their past. It's possible that they had repented, but the damage had just been done. And there were natural consequences that were going to play out in this family. Listen, to summarize at the conclusion of Reuben and Simeon and Levi where these most difficult words are spoken about these boys. Jacob is speaking the truth that God has told him to speak. And it brings to light one of the most pervasive principles in the Bible, one of the most pervasive principles in the universe, and that is that we reap what we sow. And isn't that what we're talking about when we say that sin has consequences? We reap what we sow. And there is a sowing that is taking place in this family because there has been reaping. Verse 8. Let's look at Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now here's where this begins to look up. Because right now, right, it's like the most depressing sermon of all time. (laughs) Just forget about it. Nothing you can do. You're going to reap what you sow. Consequences are far-reaching. But right, we don't want to sugarcoat anything either. I mean, this is true. On the one hand, forgiveness in Christ. There is grace to be had. There is mercy to be had. There is hope for me. There is hope for my family. Unending hope. But there is also the reality that we will reap what we sow and that sin has consequences. And these twin truths are held in tension by Christians. But here's the really good news when you get to Judah. When he calls Judah up and Judah bows down and he puts his hand on Judah's head, this is not, there's no way this is the blessing that Judah is expecting. There is no way that this is the blessing that Judah is expecting because as Jacob has just recounted the sins of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, Judah knows that his sins have perhaps been even more grievous than his brother's sins. They've also been scandalous. They've been public. They've been before many. So it's not going well for Reuben. Not going to go well for Simeon. Not going to go well for Levi. What do you think Judah is expecting the prophetic words to be about him? You remember Judah was the one who had the plan to sell Joseph into slavery. It was his plan. Let's sell him. Let's get rid of him and make some money. And remember the story in chapter 38 about Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar? He was a wicked man. Behaving wickedly. Had three boys. Three boys. Two of them were so wicked. Judah had two boys that were so wicked, God killed them. God doesn't do that really often. He usually uses means. Like, you know, they slip and fall, hit their head. But it just says God just killed them. He's done with those two boys. And Tamar, you remember, was the wife of that first son. So then the second son, Onan, is given to her. He's to marry her and love her and help her to have children. He doesn't do it. So then Judah promises his third son, hey, when my third son comes of age, I'll have him marry you. Just wait around. And he lied to her. He didn't keep his promise. Remember what Tamar did? Disguised herself as a prostitute. And Judah went out partying one night. Didn't know it. Thought he he was just sleeping with a prostitute. (laughs) He was actually sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Then later he finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant and he wants to have her killed. She's like, you know who the dad is? You should take a paternity test here. And Judah Judah was the father. That becomes a turning point in his life. But Judah, Judah knew what he had done. He knew his sin. But Judah, Judah has clearly become a godly man. 
I mean, Judah's the guy that you would look at and say, I don't even know if I want to keep praying for him. I just, I'm not sure it's going to have any, any effect. This guy's, this guy's, this is a bad boy. Judah's become a godly man. And in fact, we read here that his godly qualities will be passed down to his descendants. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. I mean, what, what boy does not want to hear that? Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. That's, that's good. I like the sound of this, Dad. Keep going. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. So Judah, you are like a lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now we may not get all the metaphors there, or wouldn't be ones that we would use, but he's saying, Judah, it's going to go very, very well for your family. You are going to prosper. Your teeth, I mean, who doesn't want teeth whiter than milk? You be so so wealthy that you, you tie your donkey to a grapevine. What does a donkey do when you tie it to the grapevine? I he probably eats them all. You gotta be pretty rich if you don't care about that. You have so much money you wash your clothes in what? In wine. Now those of you who are practical, like, well, that wouldn't work. <laughs> it would stain that doesn't make sense. I don't I don't know. And verse 10 is looking way into the future, isn't it? Verse 10 is looking way into the future. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Verse 10 is a prediction of King David who will descend from Judah And later, the descendant of King David will be King Jesus. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, is going to come from Judah's line. Revelation 5.5 And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. Verses 13-21, through 21, let's read quickly through Zebulun and Issachar and Dan and Asher and Naphtali. Just a few words are said about these boys. Zebulun steps forward, shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. So this is the flip. Zebulun is listed here before Issachar, but Issachar is older. 
We learn that in chapter 30. So for some reason, he has him come up first. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. It's really interesting if you want to take the time to follow through all of these tribes and see how these prophecies were fulfilled. But we're just touching on it briefly. But he says about Issachar, he is a strong donkey. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Now if you call someone a, a donkey or a jackass, we don't, we don't mean something good by that. We mean you're dumb or you're, you're, you're stupid. But in this day, it, to be called a donkey or a jackass was a good thing. It was a good thing. It meant you're strong. You can carry a load. You're patient. This is Issachar. He has this strength. But he's also a bit lazy. Which is what it's alluding to when it says that he saw a resting place, that he was crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Let's his guard down when he shouldn't let his guard down. Doesn't work and use his strength when he should work and use his strength. When it says that he crouched and laid down between the sheepfolds, well, between the sheepfolds is where all the manure would be thrown. And that's his resting place, it says. So he was willing to wallow in filth for his own comfort. And that won't go well for him in the future. Dan, verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. One of the characters we probably think of when we hear this prophetic word of Dan is Samson. Good description of Samson, the mighty warrior who ruled God's people for 20 years. A great story, especially for kids. Samson tore a lion apart with his bare hands. Killed a thousand Philistines, I think with a jawbone from a donkey. In his death, when he was blind, he killed like over 3,000 Philistines. So a mighty, a mighty man who was used by God. Verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Another interesting verse where Jacob's pronouncements on his sons here is actually interrupted by this phrase. I wait for salvation, O Lord. A brief prayer that perhaps highlights his concern for his family and for his children. He understands without divine deliverance, there's nothing. It's the first use of the word salvation in the Bible is when Jacob says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Verse 19, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. The descendants of Gad located in the region of Gilead, east of the Jordan River, which left them open to attack. That will prove to be true. Of necessity then, the Gadites will become skillful warriors. It's true. Verse 19, 
Raiders, uh, sorry, verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich. He shall yield royal delicacies. Getting really short now. These boys are just passing through real quick. Come on, Dad. <laughs> Throw me a bone here. <laughs> Feel bad for Naphtali. Not really what a young dude wants to hear. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I feel so manly now. I'm sure he had some nicknames after that from his brothers. <laughs> Such a sweet little doe. <laughs> okay, verse 22, Joseph. So remember Judah and Joseph, he really spends his time with. Judah is going to replace Jacob as leader of the family. Okay? It's going to be like the king and the king of kings, Jesus, is going to come through the line of Judah. Not through the line of Joseph, but Joseph is, has always been Jacob's favored son. His favorite son. And so he just heaps, heaps blessing from his heart on Joseph. He receives the, the longest blessing, rightfully so. Joseph is so godly. You can hardly find a sentence that he speaks in the Bible that doesn't have God in it. He's just a faithful, faithful man. Loves the Lord. And so great blessing is coming his way. Verse 22 through 26. First, he just talks about Joseph's faithfulness. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. By the way, who were the archers? His brothers, right? The other guys that he's blessing. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. So here's, you look at the, the, the spectrum here. These boys, I mean, you have some who, who sinned grievously and it's not going to go well for their descendants. You had some who sinned grievously, but by God's grace, it's going to go very well for their descendants. You had some who were really loved by God and, and, or loved by their dad and favored by their dad, but circumstantially it went terrible for them, like Joseph. You had others who weren't favored by dad, who weren't really loved as much by dad, but actually things went pretty well in this life for them. I mean, here's Joseph who was circumstantially in pit after pit after pit, and yet, by God's grace, he's the most faithful one. Right? You'd think it was the guy who just everything went well, and he didn't have a lot of hardship that would turn out well, but that's not true. That is not true. Hardship after hardship after hardship, but like gold refined in a fire, here's Joseph. How did he do it? And Jacob says it here in his pronouncement over him. He says all these great words about his faithfulness, and then he gives the reason for his faithfulness. And he gives God like five different names in these next few verses. Okay, his arms were made agile. How? By the he worked out? No, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Why is Joseph the way he is? Why is he godly? Because of God. Because of God. God has been faithful to him. Then he talks about the great blessings from God. 
with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. You see verse 26. Remember the words that Jacob had said about his life before? He said, my days have been few and evil. Just a sober assessment of his life. Tell us about your life. Uh, few and evil. Well, that's a real downer. But then what does he say here? Verse 26, The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. It's another reminder, isn't it, that the Christian life is a life of joy and sorrow. We are a sorrowful yet always rejoicing people. So on one hand, Jacob can look back on his life and say the days have been few and evil. And he even said in that chapter, right, that, that my life is nothing compared to the life of my dad and my grandpa. I mean, those guys were rocks. They were they're heroes to me. And I haven't gotten close to their faithfulness. And my days have been few. It's gone by really quick and it's just been filled with evil. It's just been a, I've sinned a lot, been sinned against a lot, had a lot of pain, had a lot of sorrow. So on one hand, he can say that. And then on the other hand, he can say, God has blessed me so greatly. And it feels like God has blessed me more than He blessed my dad and my grandpa. Just God's blessings have overflowed overflowed of my life. What's he doing? As he looks back at his life, he, he sees that sin has had consequences. And he sees the pain and he sees the sorrow and he sees the difficulty. But he also sees the great good hand of God. And he sees that he has reason for great joy because God has blessed him over and over and over again. Can you look at your life and see that? Can you see that? Can you see the pain and the difficulty? And Are there things that you're saddened by? Are there things you're sorrowful over? Are there things that you mourn over? Things that you don't have to ignore. Things that you don't have to sweep under the carpet. Things that you don't have to numb yourself to. But things that you can face. And, and they're sad. But then do you also see great reason for joy and hope? Do you live in that kind of tension? Jacob did. And then finally, Benjamin. Perhaps the coolest blessing. <laughs> Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. I'm sure he teased Naphtali after this, right? I'm going to go stand next to the doe. <laughs> Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. The descendants of Benjamin would be fierce warriors. Like the, the SEAL Team 6 of Israel here. You did not mess with the Benjamites. Ehud and Saul and Jonathan, the Apostle Paul, all from this tribe of 
Benjamin. You know, here he is, the, the youngest brother. Sometimes it is the youngest, isn't it, that are the fiercest? <laughs> Had to fight off all the big brothers their entire life. Don't mess with the little brother. Don't mess with the little brother. In conclusion, just two brief, quick thoughts. Reflecting back on, on these last words of, of Jacob. And I've already said this, so I'll just say it again. One, I would encourage each of us to maybe look back specifically at, at Reuben. Look to Reuben and, and be sobered. Look to Reuben and be sobered. Look at the life of Reuben. Look at the decisions that he made. And look how far-reaching the consequences were. When you look at your life, ask for God to pour out mercy. To pour out mercy on your life. Thank God for the forgiveness He has extended to you for your past sin. But ask God to be merciful. God, will you, will you somehow make it go well for those I sinned against? Will you somehow in your mercy undo some of the things that I've done? Be sobered up when you look at the life of Reuben. God, may cycles that have carried on for generations in my family line stop with me. I don't want to be in the middle of Reuben's family. A few descendants down still wicked before a few more descendants down who will also be wicked. God, deliver me. Deliver my family. Turn this course. But be sobered up when you look at the life of Reuben. And then, I would encourage you to look to Judah and be filled with hope. Look to Judah and be filled with hope. You see, Almighty God is not obligated to be merciful, but He is a merciful God. So He's not obligated to show us mercy. So we don't push the mercy switch, right? And say, okay, God, you've got to do it. No, He doesn't have to, friend. He doesn't have to. God is a good God. God is a just God. God is a righteous God. Remember we've said that if God were to allow every last human being to sin their way to hell, God's character would not be compromised. He'd still be a good, holy, righteous, just God. But we appeal to God's mercy because He's also merciful. He's not obligated to give us mercy, but does He not love to extend mercy? Over and over and over again overflowing. Wasn't it the tax collector who stood before God and really understood that as he beat his chest? Do you remember his words? Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Friends, if you genuinely cry out for the mercy of God, you shall have it. You shall have it. He's the merciful God. It's great to look at the life of Judah, isn't it? Because some of you, you have a lot of Judah-ness. 
in your past and in your history. And you can relate to Judah. And you can relate to his life. I did things that are unspeakable. I did things I'm ashamed to say I did. I've said things I'm ashamed to say I've said. I'm ashamed to recount things that I've even thought in my mind and in my heart. And look at Judah and say, that was Judah. And God raises up Judah and looks at Judah and says, Judah, Jesus is going to come from you. Jesus is going to come from you. The Redeemer, the Savior of all the world. I'm going to turn this family around. That's reason for great hope, isn't it? Not because of how great we are, how great God is. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for being a merciful God. Thank You for giving us a great basis to cry out for mercy. I pray that people would cry out for mercy today. They would know and believe that You are a good God, a loving God, a gracious God. God, we pray that You would turn people around. We pray that You would turn entire families around. God, we pray that You would bring chains. God, we pray that You would stop the ongoing consequences in their tracks and interrupt them with grace and mercy. God, we plead on behalf of our own families and the families of others. God, we ask that You would turn things around like You did in the life and in the descendants of Judah. God, and we pray we would not be like Reuben. God, we pray that we would not continue in the path he continued. God, we pray that we would not and our children and our grandchildren would not be objects of wrath, but objects of your affection. So please, God, we plead, set your affection on us and on our children and on our children's children. We love you. We give you praise and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.